Hi, everyone. You're listening to HashMap on Tap. Welcome. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the show today. I'm Kelly Coleffel. My guest today is Richie Bachala. He's the Global Data Engineering Manager at Sherwin-Williams, where he leads a worldwide team of data engineers in delivering cloud-based data-as-a-service solutions for over 10,000 data consumers across the company. Richie, welcome to the show. What are you drinking this afternoon? Thanks, Kelly. Uh, thanks for having me. I got sparkling water with cold-pressed tangerine juice, <laughs> so that's what I'm mixing today. I like that. I like that. Sounds it sounds refreshing. Is is that a is that a go to drink for you in the afternoon? Yeah, during business hours, yes. Yeah. But um, I pretty much finish a whole bottle of uh, San Pellegrino every day. So I got like a liter and a liter point two bottle of San Pellegrino. So that's one go to bottle per day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love the mix with the tangerine. I'm, I'm a I am a big fan of that fruit. I've got today. I've got H E B Organics, which is kind of my go to on the sparkling side. I've got a passion mm-hmm. fruit strawberry just mostly uh, the sparkling water with just a touch of the uh, passion fruit and it's normally drinks pretty well i enjoy that uh, throughout the day as well uh, from time to time nice yeah no i mean look at, looking forward to getting into this so let's talk a little data and cloud first of all though kind of give us a little bit of background what first sparked your interest in working in the industry that you're in and, and with the company that you're with yeah sure I'll start all the way back. So I started consulting when I was 19 in ERP space. Which ERP? Oracle EBS, Oracle eBusiness. Yeah, near and dear to my heart. Which, do you remember which version off the top? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, that was uh, EBS. 11 for sure. So EBS 11? Yes, EBS 11. And then, sorry, I did product development in EBS 11. Oh. So I was on the product development team for um, advanced process manufacturing. And then I moved into full consulting role within the integration stack of Oracle products. You were in uh, Thomas Kurian's organization then? Yes, back in the day. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I was a, was a consultant. And then after that, right after that, I was joined uh, Hitachi Consulting full-time. Mm-hmm. So from product development into middleware, use a lot of ODI. Oracle just acquired Synopsys and ODI became a thing. So I made a career out of that. So plenty of integration work. I've done some on the Bay Area and then moved over here towards the East Coast. And then I had a few customers here on the East Coast. Did a lot of integration work with ODI and a few other tools. Back then, data stage was a little bit around and we did a lot of flat file-based integration from yeah. multi-systems. From there, I got a bunch of customers on the East Coast side. PPG was my other customer that I worked at. And from there, I came here at Shubin and then got in-house to be a integration specialist for most of our Latin America implementations. So I've done that about for five years around in Latin America. We hopped around a lot of countries, so got to travel a lot. So uh, one great reason why you know, I, cho- I chose to stick around in Cleveland for this, this long. So, And now I'm now managing a data engineering team. So it's been about four to five years that I've been in the data and analytics space. So all the way from data warehousing to uh, the modern uh, data ingestion and transformation tools, we do a lot of work in that space within our data analytics organization here. Well, Sherwin-Williams is a great is a great name. I know that when we've done painting projects, whether it be inside or outside at our home over the years, that's that's always been the go-to paint for sure. And it seems like for professional painters, everybody goes to Sherwin-Williams. So great, great brand that you're associated with for sure. Yeah, it definitely is a great company. A leadership all the way top down are phenomenal people and there's a lot of learning every single day. We're truly the biggest paint company in the world, and also we're in operations in over 100 plus countries. It is a wide user base, and the needs are also pretty complex and ever-changing too. So it has given a lot of opportunity to learn servicing our business and also evolving the team to be what it is today for addressing our modern data and analytics. Yeah, no, and I like that. You mentioned uh, modern Take take me back a little bit. Give me a sense for what's been going on from data and platform perspective at Sherwin Williams in the last year or so. Specifically, what your team has been working on, what you've been focused on, and and where you've been spending your time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can definitely speak for what we are doing and what my yeah. team's doing. So, 
there, there's a lot going on because we're such a huge organization and are, there are plenty of enterprise initiatives within the space. And there are some really capable leaders within the space that are leading a lot of different initiatives. But my responsibility currently is managing a global data engineering team. We truly are a global team because I have a, a team out based out of in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, that services our local business needs, our data needs based out of APAC and ANZ regions for APAC and ANZ regions. And then I have a team in the UK for our um, EMEA region for serving our customer base there. And another team out based out of in Mexico City. These, these are pretty small agile teams, but still, you know, we need the local developers that understand our business needs and actually care to, you know, the business needs within that time zone. So within Latin, for Latin America, we have a service center based out of Mexico, Mexico City. So there's a small team there. And then here in the U.S., we have Cleveland, which is where we are headquartered. And then another one out in Minneapolis, we have some developers. But in, in all essence, it, <laughs> when I say a global data engineering team, we are truly global for serving our customers in most of the four continents. But technology-wise, I mean, we are on-prem, we are cloud, there's a lot. There's old-school Kimball-based uh, data warehousing in work that we do, and we are on Snowflake for a lot of our modern and new initiatives that are leveraging Tableau for our front-end BI. So there's varied responsibilities on, on both sides. Yeah, I mean company that's been around has a history of yours, certainly a lot of on-prem data sources, I would think. And then as the cloud has really advanced over these last few years, interesting, you talked too about Snowflake. What were you, what were you coming off of before you went to Snowflake? Did you have a enterprise data warehouse that was on-prem or something like that prior to moving to Snowflake? Yeah, we have a few warehouses, but the warehouse that, you know, my team is responsible for, we are, um, Oracle Exadata, the uh, Oracle Exadata boxes that we have, a lot of them on-prem. And as we, you know, we have been addressing our net new projects that will fit to the cloud and work well with Tableau for reporting as a platform. We have been leveraging Snowflake there. And obvi obviously the, you know, Snowflake can do so much and uh, the true power comes with, with SnowSQL. There are time travel and and a bunch of other data sharing initiatives that you could do with snowflake we we are still getting deep into it you know migration of our on-prem data into the cloud is a process that we have been slowly working through for the last year or so but mostly the most projects that are going into snowflake are net new projects net new initiatives which require multiple data sources from be it you know, Oracle databases, SQL Server, and a bunch of XML, JSON, Parquet, flat file based, and you know, getting them consolidated and building those globalized data sources that are needed for reporting is where Snowflake's been really doing well for net new. Instead of you know, massaging that data that's existing on on our on-prem service, we have been you know working in bringing that and collating that and working with performance issues that we historically would be dealing on an Oracle database and leveraging Snowflake's power from saving time over there from the performance issues is how we've been making those uh, some of those internal decisions to, to move some data into Snowflake. Yeah, that's helpful. I'm always interested and we get asked a lot, uh, you know, I'm going from this you know, kind of known entity, in your case, uh, Oracle Exadata, mm -hmm. Oracle Relational Database, I'm going to the cloud, I'm going to consumption-based models. It kind of spawns a lot of questions that mm. I feel like are really interesting to start talking about. Have you have you seen, or what have you seen as it relates to getting net new data products out the door? I know you said a lot of the stuff you're doing in Snowflake now is net new. Yeah. If you were doing those same net new data products on Exadata today versus now doing them in Snowflake, are you seeing, what are you seeing time-wise? Is it shrinking? Is it taking more time, less time? What What's the general sense? <laughs> that's a loaded question but uh <laughs> so the short answer is the needs that we have for these net new projects are existing hardware existing exadata infrastructure that we have is not sustainable for the long term and what it does support for us today is you know we spent i think in 2018 we spent about three thousand hours between my team and a couple of other teams on the dba team just performance tuning indexing re-indexing adding constraints and partitioning our, our warehouses just so that they perform optimally for our you know sla uh, to be met in the morning for various sales metrics that needed to go out various uh, 
what do you call it, these morning SLA dashboards that needed to be updated for our, for our user base yeah. in the business that's in the plant level. So in order for that to be met, uh, you know, and as we are growing, our data is growing at, at a significant rate. And it was 8% for a few years, but then, you know, that double, triple with more acquisitions and more data sets that we are combining to collate. So with that scaling of our resources within our on-prem infrastructure, uh, within our data centers uh, are limited. So even if we throw multiple CPUs at it, even if we throw, it still is the same traffic. Right. If you have suddenly 2,200 users come in to access one data set at exactly 7 a.m. in the morning, things are choking. So no matter how much we do. So we needed a solution, especially for my team's purposes, to see what would work best that we could scale up easily and then divide traffic. Right. You know, Oracle gives you an Oracle resource manager and there's other capabilities. But the thing is, you need to try it out so many times to get the magic right. And you have to have you know, the DBA teams so closely engaged in the process. Mm-hmm. So there's there's been a lot, a lot of things that we tried before we actually started looking at a, a cloud solution that would serve our needs. And then the three options, and we just didn't pick Snowflake just like that, right? We, we've done multiple evaluations with Redshift and Google BigQuery and also Snowflake, all three together. And there were a few other options that were available too. We looked at, and unfortunately, they didn't really meet our criteria. And and I've been asked this question now several times: so why why Snowflake? Why not Redshift? Why why not <laughs> BigQuery? It's again, you know, Redshift is a great product, but what we wanted to accomplish for the various data sets and not being tied into AWS stack, we went with Snowflake. And I wrote a Medium article just spe- specifically. Mm-hmm. This this uh, question uh, evaluating Snowflake versus Redshift versus BigQuery, which basically are our three options. I mean, Synapse is coming close, but Synapse is not great for enterprise accounts, not great for huge volume. It's good for smaller data sets and same like SQL Server, right? So it doesn't really compare. So, but the three real big options which anybody has is Redshift, Snowflake, and BigQuery, and uh, yeah, for multiple reasons, we we went with Snowflake, and ever since it's been it's been a pretty great journey. <laughs> well, we'll uh, yeah, Richie, man, we'll we'll definitely link up that Medium article so everybody can check it out. I would agree with you. I mean, we're seeing Redshift, BigQuery, Snowflake, and certainly uh, remains to be seen how fast Microsoft progresses that Synapse platform. Some interesting mm-hmm. capabilities though that they've got there for sure. Let me. I'm going to circle back real quick too because you mentioned. I think early on that you're also using a Kimball data model approach uh, in your data warehouse. Did you go ahead and take that from your Oracle Exadata and are you using that type of approach with Snowflake now? Oh, that's that's a great question. So we love uh, Star Schemas uh, because I, I got I got a lot of really good developers on team. And there are guys who've been doing data, data warehousing for about 20 years. And, okay. uh, a lot of the a lot of the guys on my team, the leads that are on my team, they've actually met Ralph Kimball and they got the 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 data modeling dimensional modeling classes that Ralph Kimball back then offered by himself. They attended those classes, so I have some people who've seen it all from a, from from the longest time, at least for the last two decades. So so with that said, we have strong data modeling capabilities within our team. So. We don't want to move away from that because there's beauty in it. There's beauty in really designing a beautiful data model with proper keys and relationships. And everybody wants to do that, but that's expensive. That takes time and it's designed, right? It's it's also, there is a little bit of creativity that's involved. It's not just pure technical capabilities, but also you need to really think through and have intuitions about dividing facts versus dimensions and then having uh, the proper keys and also the slowly changing dimensions. How do you want to set that up? So. The team is very capable of that, and we and I know there are multiple articles that are going around it's like uh, star schemas are dead and in Corta throw everything in the dump and then you know see what it comes out and yes it's great but we have it you know so it is expensive so somebody has to build a star schema it takes time and it is expensive and it's relational model that you can really leverage the power of it so we are trying to keep those still alive because there are some compli- complicated star schemas with a lot of data. So we do a lot where where it is applicable within Snowflake too, or or, or worse, or uh, vice versa. But we do appreciate good data models. 
No, I, I totally get that. I, I feel like there's this, because again, it's, it's this thing that comes up over and over again. I feel like there's this continuum between a traditional data model like you guys are using and this ultimate flexibility maybe that something like Snowflake gives you. And it, it feels like both ends of the continuum, maybe there's a point that depending mm-hmm. on your requirements, like you said, depending on your skill sets, how, how what have we been doing over the years? How quick, to me, it's all about what can I use? What Where can I be on that continuum to deliver those data products and data outcomes the fastest to my consumers that are the most sustainable and do the most for the business? And I think it shifts on that continuum back and forth, depending on what type of company you are, what your skills right. are, what your technologies are, and where you're coming from. And there's no one answer that's exactly right on that. And But it it seems like it's always a debate between, you know, one side versus the other. And I, I feel like the meeting in the middle is is probably where most companies are, are going these days. Right. And, and, and you said it right. Uh, you know, that's exactly what it is, because there is time to market and every, everything needs to be accelerated. So, yeah. so the answer is dump everything into it, throw a bunch of compute at it, and then you'll find the answer and then we will figure it out later. I mean, that's that's the way the industry is moving yeah. towards. That's what cloud enables us. I mean, you know, hey, you want to you wanna put $10,000 to solve this one problem or you want to build it? Like, so that, again, is, is it an operational reporting need or is it a one-time data science need? Mm-hmm. Is the question that you need to define, right? For majority of your operational reporting need that has an SLA that needs things need to be delivered for your end users at a certain time and multiple times during the day, and it needs to be correct, right? So that means you can't just dump all your files and expect a model to, to churn and give you those outputs every day, every four hours, mm-hmm. you know? So, so for things like that, a good re- a relational data model, be it Snowflake or anywhere, is going to be very valuable for sustenance of that product for the next 10 years. Imagine, or next whatever, how many or number of years you need to be. But if it is a one-time thing, yeah, nobody has the time to write the complete ETL stack, get it into staging area and do, do a nice little star schema or dimension model or normalize the data. No, you don't. Nobody has that time. It's just like one time you're trying to find some kind of a forecast value. And then, you know, just dump all your files, all your XML files into Snowflake or blob storage and have, have a query run on it. And it might take four or five hours and it's a throwaway work anyway. So you get your extract. Keep it right. So, like you said, you know, for most use cases, that's how I divide them up, mm-hmm. right? And that is like operational reporting versus one-time needs or, or something to do with a forecast model or for a data science model. Yeah, uh, and fascinating. What another another big shift too when you guys went to Snowflake was from Exadata was you had to shift to consumption-based, pay by the drink, pay by the second, pay by the minute type pricing. What has that experience been like? Is it is it what you expected? Has it been higher or lower cost-wise? How difficult is it to manage? All those things, what's what's it been like for you and your team so far? Oh, yeah, I mean, we, we were told uh, initially, like, no, you, you don't have control on, they can charge you whatever. It's like, you have negotiated rates, you have credits, and you have dashboards that you look through. So there's a Tableau dashboard that's out there that Snowflake published and mm-hmm. um, on their website too, which shows you what you're consuming per warehouse, per the size of a warehouse, and also for storage. So yeah, I mean, you have to be responsible with what you are burning. Uh, if you have set number of credits, you got to be definitely responsible. But I don't think it's it's that terrible. You know, thinking about it, for $22 per terabyte per month, I know. peanuts on a dollar, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, compared to what, like a, a rack of Exadata costs you a million dollars, now you're talking, <laughs> yeah. and you don't know what full processing powers, and then you need a team of DBAs to maintain your infrastructure. and your data center too i mean it needs to be maintained and there's a whole bunch of things that you need to deal with right so there's that and with azure also provides you blob storage if you, anything that's not being used you go throw it in cold yeah take me back a little bit from uh, exadata to snowflake you had i'm not sure the process that you guys used on the on that data migration and the amount of mm-hmm. sql that you had to convert over but you certainly had to deal with oracle pl sql to snow sql what what was the approach that worked for you guys if looking back on it now would you've done anything differently if you had to do it today Oh, wow. So that's still in progress. I mean, we don't have a magic bullet solution. I don't think anybody in the industry right now has. Mm. I mean, there are products and there are companies, consulting services that are out there that 
give you an act, some kind of an accelerator for making your journey into the cloud, into Snowflake a little bit faster with various ingestion methods. So it, this is a whole big conversation, right? So well, you, let me let me let me step back. Did you did you guys do a one time migration from your historical exadata, or is it just been more incremental feeds coming from those source systems that were originally feeding exadata? Or what was the process that you used? It's it's incremental. So okay. uh, initially, there's this one-time process that we built, and a lot of that is actually on my GitHub too. So you know, Snowflake provides you this Python scripts that will strip out all of the drop statements and constraints that are there within your DDLs, so you can migrate your objects as is for the whole schema. So we obviously have done that like everybody else, and then once you are for moving the data, we built our own custom ingestion process, uh, which basically is a lot of Python-based, but out of ODI. I mean, we are still using ODI for a lot of our migration, but we are considering Matillion, Informatica, ICS as a couple of our options for uh, our future migrations into the cloud. But Going back, right? So it's one of the process that we build is really, really efficient. The way the way we do it is so we generate a bunch of files, a set of files, and these files say for say, let's for example, say on average, say are about a GB long, right? And we get eight files for eight GB, each one each one GB long. Generate all of our files based off on our servers because these are all within our network and they're on on our servers and our on on-prem databases, they are generated and they're ready to go in our staging FTP location. And then we invoke Snowpipe. So once we invoke Snowpipe, even if it is a small cluster, right? So you have eight eight threads that are running at the same time, and it'll suck the entire thing up in. And we have performances of getting about one GB file, eight one GB files with a small cluster within like less than five minutes. So eight gigs in five minutes, that's kind of unheard of before <laughs> uh, to get so much volume in. And these are pretty significant column column length and, and a pretty significant number of records that you're loading at the same time. So, and, and we've done that. And so that's our standard process of moving our one-time loaded data to Snowflake from on-prem to- you, you said that that, uh, that that codes out on uh, public GitHub? Somebody yeah, can yeah. take a look at yeah, well, yeah. Is it okay to link that up? Absolutely. Yeah, oh, cool. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So there, because a lot of people ask me, "How do you do this? How do you do this?" And it's it's it's, it's nothing proprietary. It's it's pretty standard. Some of Snowflake's code, some of our code, we put some Python together. It's it's a nice way to move you know data into into the cloud. Because you know the thing is, a lot of people what they do. So the st standard way when everybody does is that you invoke Snowpy for every transactional record, which is such a waste of your compute resources. Imagine that takes about twenty hours, yeah. right? And it goes on forever, and you're paying for nothing. Pretty high cost, yeah. Pretty exactly. high cost. Yeah. So, uh, and even if you are generating the files while something else is going in, it is it is it is a fairly lengthy process, twenty hours. So you're paying for compute for five minutes now on Snowflake side yeah. because I don't have any charge on my on-prem servers. So, uh, so that's how we streamlined. That's how we did a lot of a lot of this, and there was a lot of learning, and we custom built a lot of this. So the guys on my team, exceptionally talented developers, data engineers, and they came up with some of these uh, with one week's working workshop with Snowflake, and yeah. it's called the Quick Start Engagement. We've done that like about two years ago. It's it was pretty fun. Uh, in fact, the two guys that came from Snowflake, both of them were previously Oracle Ace, uh, Ace directors. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Danny and Mike, both of them really great guys. And usually Snowflake used to send one solutions architect for these quick start engagement. And I kind of wanted to set an agenda before we even started the engagement. So with my agenda setting, it's like, oh, I'm sure this, uh, you guys are going to get feed up. So they send us two. So, <laughs> so really great guys. And we keep in contact and they've been really great help. So a couple of shout outs over there. No, that's great. I, I was curious on your when you were doing those one-time data migrations. Was there anything in your code base that was handling uh, things like data validation, data quality, or matching your Oracle data database Oracle tables to Snowflake tables? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yes. So the beauty here's the here's the thing: we hacked up ODI's knowledge modules, right? When you do, we customized our own knowledge modules, our mm. LKMs, CKMs, and IKMs, and within the process, ODI already has that. <laughs> so the reconciliation effort. So when we are generating those files, you are, and I think that's probably also checked into my GitHub uh, with, with the ODI schemes. I don't know if there is not. If someone needs, shoot me and shoot me a DM on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'll probably 
get that out. But so what I was saying is, so those knowledge modules were customized in a way that we reconcile the numbers end to end. And in the log file, we generate the reconciliation. So we know what we are loading and there is no issue. Usually for most part, there has not been any issue because it's pretty straightforward flat file generation and ingestion, but it worked. It served our purpose. It serves our purpose to move our data immediately into the cloud, but it is really not efficient because if you think about it, you are using Python code and sometimes that goes way too deep and gets way too long. So there are tools, right? There are very good tools that are built for this purpose. Metillion does that. You don't have to write all of this Python code and you don't really have to customize your knowledge modules like the way we are kind of hacking up ODI to do what we want to do, right? So Metillion does that. We are using Fivetran for some of our data sets that they already have APIs for where we don't have to do this entire data workflow creation. And then we are also strongly evaluating um, IACS for mass ingestion. So they have the their mass ingestion module offering within, within the Informatica Cloud offerings. So that's great product along with IACS, which is pretty simplistic way of moving data as power center would used to do with the same UI. Now that sounds really interesting. In fact, that was, uh, give me an idea when you're talking about the data acquisition and replication, how would you rate your, the, the workloads, the patterns, the processes that you've got on a, on terms of complexity, let's just, you know, say on a zero to 10 scale, how complex are your data acquisition collection transformation type workloads? Oh, pretty complex because we are a complex organization. Uh, so I say that because we have a lot of rules. So think about this, right? You're dealing with an enterprise which has business in about a hundred countries and mm-hmm. we got multiple production ERPs, right? And when I say production ERP, let's just talk about our Oracle space. So there's not a single global instance of Oracle. You've got multiple Oracle instances probably running across. Yes. At 10 or 20 different countries. Yes, like yeah, exactly. yeah, for regions, uh, if you think about it. Yeah. And and then when you add an acquisition, which is also on our other Oracle, uh, then so you're adding, you're stacking these up. So think about it. So when somebody is asking for uh, an aggregated Excel level dashboard or, or, or a data set for a true metric, you have to get all of these data sets from all of these regions from multiple mm-hmm. production environment and you have to do it overnight, right? And you have to do it per instance because the same tables, the target tables are the same tables. So in Oracle, the big problem is you deadlock it up, right? When two processes are trying to write into the same target, either staging area or target fact tables. So all of that needs to be orchestrated in a way that we have a timing in a proper fashion per region. And then two, uh, we'd have to get phenomenal performance of our target uh, tables. Once data is there in our staging area, then we move it into our, our dimensional model or whatever, if it is a flat-end reporting table, which is which is the way of the world right now, right? Tableau is extremely advocating a flat-end reporting table for majority of this dashboard because it's easy for the analysts to look and consume that versus you're giving them a, a blend of multiple tables put together, like, okay, this is your data, data source. It gets a little, little uh, I mean, I'm not saying uh, for entry-level analysts, it'll be a little too much to consume. So we address both those needs based on the maturity level of our end users and also the analysts that are in the process, uh, report developers in the process. So it's a mix. I don't know if I answered your question though, but. No, that, that's really interesting. I'm, I want to go back to, because multiple Oracle EBS instances, multiple countries, give me a sense for how you're handling, again, another question that comes up a lot. How do you handle identity resolution that, you know, a customer in, you know, that is um, uh, assigned within one Oracle EBS instance and same customer in another, are, are there some tricks and tips that you can give everybody on how you're pulling that together to say, hey, here is my you know golden record for the customer in Snowflake today, or golden record for a particular Sherwin-Williams product in Snowflake today, those types of things. Because that's a pretty big challenge when you've got that many source systems that are generating data. Yeah, well, we are the data engineering team. We are not the MDM team. So there is, so we want- So there's a whole nother MDM team. Yeah, okay. That has to be, that's responsible for that. So there's product, 
for product information. There is for customer information, yeah. for, for supplier, vendor. There's a bunch of different MDM team. All their responsibility is to make sure that, you know, it matches up. You know, they know source system to source system. And there are multiple MDM platforms too within our organization. And there's like really, really smart people trying to collate and maintain and keep that. But, you know, we our responsibilities for data analytics yeah we are not the end users that are maintaining or cataloging this data so then mm-hmm. and we don't even want to go into that business because that is a messy business and we are engineers we are developers we are data warehouse developers and we know how to write pipelines and move data and give you analytics or data sets for your analytics within a reasonable time that's our responsibility we want to keep it strictly that business and yeah. and, our, and the infrastructure that is needed for that job function is is what we are responsible for. So like you said, like quality governance and cataloging and publishing those enterprise data sets, that's pretty important business. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense, Richie. Let, let me ask you this, uh, going back to the, uh, the data engineering side. Mm-hmm. So Oracle Exadata previously, Let's talk about data transformation for a minute. I would assume probably a lot of those were either happening within Oracle, maybe stored procedures, those types mm-hmm. of things. Maybe they were handling uh, some in, in ODI. Mm-hmm. How are you handling transformation? How, how were you doing it then? How are you doing it now? Has your thinking changed around now that I've got this elastic, scalable cloud data warehouse snowflake, mm-hmm. I can do different things as it relates to my transformations today and enrichment? Yeah, great question. So there's two parts to it. You've got ingestion problem, which we talked about briefly, right? So mm-hmm. we're getting your on-prem data into the cloud. Everybody's dealing with that issue. So we built our custom Python workflows mm-hmm. and we use Fivetran for that for a lot of that. We are using our uh, you know ODI and Power Center, Informatica Power Center for a lot of that with our custom Python code. That's for getting the data there. Once the data is in Snowflake, how do you manage transformations? So the default answer for the industry is everybody does is Python, right? You, you go use Python and start massaging the data the way you want to, or you can use tools like Tableau Data Prep, you know, which kind of helps you with some of that. Alteryx is another one that will help you with some of that transformation needs without really having the need to write like a PLSQL cursor, right? It generate those PLSQL cursor based operations using either Python or Jupyter notebooks or something similar of that of that fashion, and then have it packaged and be executable at times that you need and when you need. So, which is our default take as it is too? And like I said, mm-hmm. we are in the in the process of have been evaluating a bunch of tools for uh, transformation and ingestion reasons. And like I said, when IICS and Metelian comes into it, into the picture, some of those needs would be, either of those tools would be able to address our massive transformation because a lot of hand coding is something that I, it's great because as a developer, you are you know flexing your muscle, uh, your brain muscle, but um, it is not sustainable because when you have like 20 developers trying to work on the same piece of code, eventually at some point it just becomes messy. Where, where is that? No, that's a great point. Where is that break-even point? Is it is it in terms of the, the amount of code? Is it the amount of pipelines? Is it the amount of developers where you go, okay, I got to buy now. I can't actually build anymore and sustain that build is there a, some sort of metric that you you kind of live by for that it's utilization right yep. is how much time you're spending uh writing that code and everybody is talking about time to market and how can you accelerate your time for providing accurate analytics within to the business at, in a shortest period of time because for most of these reports to make any sense or to make any fiscal gain for an organization the big factor is time Right, uh, and I think recently Frank Slootman in one of his virtual webinars or something, he's mentioned time value of data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, uh, so you can get you the most accurate report, but if it is one day one day late, <laughs> it's no point at all because you lost your your fiscal advantage that the enterprise could possibly have. So that is where that's the key defining factor. It's it's not a magic figure, right? When by the end of the day, our responsibility and our purpose what we serve within our organization is to serve our business uh, users and with in a, in a timely fashion uh, with, with accelerated uh, data engineering practices to give them valid data sets that's our purpose in the organization it is kind of the core and that's how that's what i always tell my developers on the team uh, and 
this is what our responsibility is because if, when you do have that clarity then it just makes life easier right. it's it's not it's not like oh it's mdm it is dbas it is us it is it is a different infrastructure it's linux it is within azure so it kind of makes life uh, easier no great uh, great thoughts hey let me ask you take a quick uh, break how is your tangerine infused sparkling water doing is it uh, hanging in there pretty good i'm running shots i'm not sorry <laughs> <laughs> restock i like it i like it Mine is, uh, mine's hanging in there. Let me ask you, uh, Richie, shift gears just a little bit. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, technology, a lot about process. I mean, we could, we could spend, certainly spend a lot more time on those topics because they're fascinating. But let me ask you, when you, when you start looking at and, and somebody says, hey, Richie and team, I have got a new data product that I need to uh, get developed. I need you guys to be the, the team behind developing those pipelines, presenting that data and everything. How do you as a general rule, define success for a new data product that you're developing with your team at Sherwin-Williams? Well, first, there is no scarcity of work for us. There are like hundreds of projects that are currently sitting on the shelf and that all require, so they get prioritized. So the success criteria is adoption, the amount of time the analysts using that data, spend using that data, either using Tableau or uh, whatever it means right within our team we support three bi platforms we obie business objects and tableau so that's within our team here right and it, obviously obie is going away so we've been trying to decommission obie get get out of there <laughs> you know not to diss on oracle but they really don't have a cloud migration strategy uh, maybe they do now but at least for the last one and a half year ago when i checked they, they did not mm-hmm. OBIE to OAC migration, you know, strategy. Uh, it's a brand new implementation. So if that is the case, why would you, you know, put your money in a product that only existed for a few years versus Tableau that's been around for 17 years, and which is a great community or Power BI for that matter, right? There are options that are that are better. So you can make that decision to leave and then pick a right product that that helps and that works. Again, the success factor is adoption and how, how much of it and the interaction right we we do have coes we have a center of excellence for coding um, and analytics and when they do come back and interact and they want to express hey this data series is amazing this is what we found out we're going to do an in- a presentation on so and so thing i mean we don't usually get any of the credit for that because you know we are there for providing them the data sets and it's for them to find insights out of it so it, that's that's what I would say. I mean, that that's how I would say. Um, more adoption would be uh, would be it. And a lot of our projects are also migration, right? Mm-hmm. So we are migrating certain modules off of OBIE into say Tableau for this instance. So we have currently x hundred number of like say five hundred users on our OBIE platform, and then we're getting them onto Tableau, and we don't have to do the entire data set available to them day one, right? But we do have to give them those data sets in quantities that they can consume. So when when we do that and they come back and they say, oh, can we do this differently now? Those are the conversations we try to incorporate into our uh, our data modeling and uh, our uh, design sessions so we could build good data sources. We're not just replicating the existing star schema that was supported previously in a subject area. So we, we are trying to change. It's not a, it's not a lift and shift migration, but it is a, you're going from a Tableau report to visual analytics, which Tableau provides, where you give them that you have to teach them like, hey, don't go to Excel, which is not my team's responsibility because we are data engineers by by responsibility. But you know, we do teach them like how they could use data sets. And and also we use that various pro- products too. Like say, hey, you know, you're getting certain reports from OBIE and certain from business objects, certain from Tableau, and maybe some things there's from MicroStrategy. Uh, there's this product called uh, Xenoptics. Uh, it's like a BI hub. So that uh, we've used in our, uh, we use here uh, in, in the organization is basically a one-stop shop. So you, we go like, hey, bihub.shirling.com or something like that, um, you know, standard URL. And then uh, say for purchasing, there's a standard reports that are within OBIE and Tableau and business objects. They're all collated and put together. So you just click on the link and within Chrome, it opens up. Uh, it's it's a pretty cool product. It's it's uh, nice, uh, a niche vendor that's out of, 
the Bay Area. They make it happen. It's like because every every company the size of us or any enterprise that's the size of us, they have multiple reporting platforms. So how do you make it available within the same platform? And it's single sign-on too. So you use one single sign-on. So you are using similar reports collated together. So I mean, I love all these. You're just generating additional questions here that I I, I want to try to get to a few of these. When you talk about, and I love defining success around adoption, do you is there a benchmark, Richie, that you use for a number, a, a sprint or two sprints or three spent, uh, sprints when your team is building out a new data pipeline or a new data engineering product or a new set of capabilities around a data product? Is, is there a target that you're going after today or is it is it so dependent on what that end consumer is looking to do? I'm just curious if you have a benchmark today that you go, Guys, we got to be hitting a you know one to two sprint type thing. So every project, every data set is different, yeah. and our consumers are so different. So like we said, right? You said we have about ten thousand users. We are actually over eleven thousand users that we support, <laughs> and uh, my team is a fraction fraction of that number, yeah. like a micro fraction of that number. So the only way that many users are able to use our data and we still can get some sleep <laughs> is for the fact because it's we heavily evangelize and advocate self-service mm. because we want them to be self-reliant on what their data needs are. At what level of self-service, are you talking about the actual end consumers, those Tableau, OBI, business objects users or something before that? The end users, okay. the business analysts that are actually getting into and and their that the the local managers for our various groups, right? R and D, our our groups in purchasing finance and and uh, local uh, customers within uh, our Latin America countries like Brazil, Chile, like also local groups in UK and and, and multiple countries there. So and and coming back to success, mm-hmm. right? From the technology perspective, I have clear metrics for everything. <laughs> you know, adoption levels are different, right? Sometimes a impo- very important project, something that we spent four to six weeks or seven weeks building, uh, developing and deploying, could be only used by four people because of the visibility and the, the sponsorship from our senior leadership. Right. There are some projects that we spend two weeks and it's consumed by like 300 people, like right off the bat, right? Because it's a, it's a new regulation that came up because of the California regulation uh, for the consumer data or the GDPR, whatever that is, a certain regulation comes up and we need to make sure that is met and they want to make sure that a report for certain metrics are being you know spinned out mm-hmm. for users to consume. That is a widely consumed data set and it needed to be needs to be delivered on our timeline and it needs to be done and and the user base will be huge so uh, for most of those it, there's they are they are kind of an uh, relatively easier projects but uh some uh, some where they want to say hey i want to bring this weather data along with our local census data for this particular region and we want to run and see what's going on and we want to explore that data along with whatever other sales data that we have data sets like that we need to be a little bit trickier uh, we need to work with our end users and what are they exactly because most part they don't know what they are asking for. yeah they're asking for an exploratory data sets and those people are tough to deal with and those projects kind of you know fizzle away they don't fizzle away they prolong forever i want an end date for that project but the thing is they always can you just add this one little thing we need to do exchange rates a little bit differently so so it's it's hard to say no because we are here to to serve our business and those people they're actually making an impact and and our end goal is to for them to help sell more paint uh, so exactly exactly i'm going to circle back again you you'd mentioned a while ago that um you guys have been involved in migration from obi to obiee to tableau uh and trying to remove some of the technical debt as you go down that path are there any gotchas any lessons learned anything for other folks that are kind of going along that same journey that you can say hey do this or don't do this mm-hmm yeah, a lot. <laughs> that that could be a separate podcast or like a whole season by itself. No, sorry. A season. Uh, oh, I like it. No, no, no. Because in all honesty, I would say talk to your user base. I would definitely don't push a tool to your user base because you know your enterprise architecture team thought it is the best one. I mean, I think your business knows what they need and 
and, and I've used some examples before too, because if you don't give them what ex what they are looking for, they will find a way to use what they want to do. Because historically, what they did is they would take an Excel dump of the report that you generated in whichever platform and put it into whatever tool that they want, and they start working on. So you want to be their ally, and unless unless you're not a really an ally, you know you're really not serving anyone. It just it just will create unnecessary rework. So and I've used this example before too in a recent podcast. So, for, for example, how Tableau came came about in our organization is, you know, we from IT, we were at a local Tableau user group, and uh, and uh, the bunch of people that were uh, sitting in the front row for, at this user group were our end users, some of our business users. And uh, after the end of um, the user group meeting, uh, the guy at the podium says, "Okay, how many of you guys are Tableau customers?" and every one of them raised their hands i'm like wait what we don't have tableau we don't support where is this coming from so after the conversation we go back and ask hey um hey, sorry tableau you was like they were, they were actually a was shocked to see us there and then the second thing uh they're they like yeah we bought tableau it's like what do you mean you bought it's like they use their corporate amexes to buy tableau desktops for their uh, individual and i was like so where are you getting the data it's like well, we just take an extract from business objects as a CSV and dumping yeah. it in yeah. building machines. So same thing with Alteryx. You know, Alteryx came with the Sherwin with a small pocket, and and although we we you know directed the traffic to move towards Tableau Data Prep and give that out for free and be ahead of that, but but I would say you know that, that's that's a good way to look at it. Power BI similar situations that you would go into with Microsoft and they're selling if you have Office three sixty five. There's pockets of power by Power BI you need to support. So I think that's on the front end side, right? I, I would definitely give a recommendation. But on the OBIE to Tableau migrations, I would say don't recreate the wheel. Mm. Uh, that would be my, my biggest advice. Don't recreate the wheel. There are a lot of companies, there are a lot of good consulting companies that have done this work over and over and over again. And find one, find an ally, find a partner and do an accelerated sprints, sprint model to deploy an out-of-the-box model. Because there is no reason to rebuild the entire data model, ETL stack, and and the data sources from scratch. Yeah. Use someone else's uh, model, 60-70% out-of-the-box, uh, and then do your customizations on top of it. You will save six to seven months of the process. Do it by module by module. That's what that's my strategy in general is, and it's been working out pretty well. And we've been pretty successful. And I'm happy to give our references too. No, I think that's great advice, Richie, for anybody looking to modernize their data platforms. I think that, you know, don't build from scratch is, uh, you know, because you're right. I mean, there, a lot of stuff over the past few years has been created out there. It's out in the public domain. It's open source, mm -hmm. people willing to share. And I, I agree, you can accelerate your your projects and that time to outcome, time to impact that much more. Hey, as we're, as we're, uh, this has been a great conversation. I have a million other questions I've noted down, but I know we've been, uh, we're probably running over at this point. Let me just ask you to wrap it up. Anything that you're doing right now outside of work in terms of how you're spending your time? Oh, yeah. So I recently got engaged. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we are planning a wedding. So that's been extremely tedious and great and exciting at the same time so yeah that's that's been consuming a lot of my free time uh, if that was if it wasn't that there's a lot of snow here out on the streets now but at this time of the year i'm usually in utah or uh, uh, one of uh, the ski resorts will be skiing uh, or snowboarding which do you prefer skiing or uh, riding snowboarding a lot I, I i keep saying every year this is my last year but I, probably this might be my last year really yeah. because i, I want to save my knees to to the extent i can so now i do enjoy snowboarding a lot i've snowboarded in the andes the alps and the rockies so far so it's been it's been really fun out of uh, out of all the places you've been snowboarding what would what what's your favorite what's what's the top spot that you've you've enjoyed more than any other I think Chile, Chile. Uh, we were we were um, in the Andes out there, uh, and we had to take this bus from Santiago earlier in the morning at four a.m. And the bus goes up these fifty-six turns. The first, sorry, I think it's um, fifty-six on the top, and the bottom were like thirty or forty. So the first 30, 40 turns were nothing. You, you don't feel it because they are wide roads and normal. But the last, the, the narrow ones come up. The last fifty or fifty-six that are. Yeah. 
those are incredibly uh, scary. <laughs> but once you're out there, it's a whole different thing. The first time I was there using that bus, we went down there for um, doing the implementation work for Sherwin for many years and, and uh, got the opportunity to spend the weekend and spend the weekend in Valle Nevado and a few other resorts out there. We had a lot of fun. So that probably was one of the best experiences uh, snowboarding. Yeah, that is uh, that is fascinating. I've uh, I've been a number of times, never to Chile though, so uh, I'll have to keep that one in mind. Hey, one other question: If you were not in yeah. tech and you were not doing a great job of data engineering, what would you be doing? Oh, interesting. Uh, I I play a little bit of music, so oh. I, I don't know. So instrument of choice or instruments of choice. Uh, I, pl I play uh, pretty much almost all kinds of guitars. Uh, I have like a bunch of them right here, like next to me. So I, I play bass in our church worship team and, and uh, acoustic guitar every now and then. But uh, I don't think I'll take, I would have taken that up professionally because my skill level is not all that. It's just good enough for a weekly ones worship team practice. <laughs> but uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I would have been like some, uh, done something in finance. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, uh, last thing, anything that uh, maybe we haven't talked about today that you would like to give some visibility to could be a project or product media, different thing that you'd like to share here that we haven't already talked about. Oh, work-wise, we can talk a lot about, uh, you know, cloud or talk a lot about, you know, where data analytics and automated yeah. AI and automated ML. Oh, yeah. That's where a lot of my um, research right now is to look at automated AI and automated ML platforms to see just, just, just sort of curiosity, not not in terms of you know meeting any business needs or something, but by just keeping a lot. Uh, there are some use cases that we are evaluating because there is no need. You don't need to hire a PhD data scientist anymore because a lot of that is already prepackaged software that's available. You just need to know you have need to have the proper business acumen. So that's where my curiosity is. And besides that, I, I've been into blockchain since 2017 uh, on the Ethereum platform. So just been following through that news uh, at least the last three years has been very interesting and also been fruitful just recently. So, <laughs> um, so I've been extremely glad about that too. So it's, it's something to do, like, weird things to do about um, <laughs> reading white papers. Yeah, I guess. Oh, I know. I, we've got to have some diversion there. Well, Reggie, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining the show. I have really enjoyed the chance to talk to you, understand what you're doing as the global data engineering lead for Sherwin-Williams. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Right. Absolutely. Looking forward to keeping up with everything that's that's going on with you and your team. As always, a huge thank you to everyone that listened into the show. We appreciate everybody and would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You can always visit us at hashmapinc.com and send us feedback, comments, your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you soon on another episode of HashMap on Tap. Take care. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.